Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Well, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Is it good to be in the house of the Lord today? It is. It is. Yes, it is. Well, it is my pleasure to be up here today. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And no, I am not preaching today. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Someday soon. But uh, it's actually my joy to get to get to share some really exciting things that are happening in the life of our church today. Pastor Spence is going to be preaching an awesome word in Exodus and continuing our series. But before he comes up, I want to talk a little bit about something that's happening that's, that's actually really exciting to me personally. So if you haven't been around Mercy for very long, you might not know that we were started in 2015, which means that this year we'll be celebrating our seventh birthday in September. Which is awesome. Yeah, praise God for the many years of his faithfulness to us. And one of the things that is great about being a church that's kind of shaking off the baby fat and growing into preschool and toddlerhood is that we start to have some stability to our structure, to our leadership, and some momentum towards our mission. And, and for those of you that don't know our mission, our mission here at Mercy Church is to make disciples who love God, love each other, and love our world. And we're amped about that mission today and really any day that you come to anything at Mercy, we're excited to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we believe that God has given Mercy a unique call to make disciples that do that work. And so uh, one of the things this year that's going to be a transition for us and really an opportunity for growth for our church is we have the honor of getting to send our lead pastor, Spence, on a sabbatical this year. And uh, I'm not sure if you're new to church uh, or if you've heard that term before, but wherever you are, you might, you might hear the word sabbatical and you might think, well, that's just church language for something's wrong. And, and I get that and I wanna acknowledge that. And that's part of the reason we're telling you now far in advance, because we want to be honest. We wanna be honest that nothing is wrong. Like, Honestly, nothing is wrong. This is not a reactive move. Pastor Spence is going to be up here preaching today. He's going to be up here in the weeks to come, continuing to lead us. He's going to be taking his sabbatical in July, and he's going to be gone for July, August, September, and October. And this is such a great gift that our church can give our lead pastor. And so nothing's wrong, I promise. We're going to keep saying that over and over and over because unfortunately in our church culture and in the context that we live in, there are a lot of stories of pastors that experience significant burnout. And sometimes sabbatical is the, the code word, if you will, that the church leadership uses to initiate some sort of transition. And that's not our plan. We're not planning on getting rid of Spence while he's gone. We're not planning on becoming Duke fans while he's gone. We're <laughs> planning on continuing the mission forward as a church to the glory of God without our lead pastor. And this is actually something that is really good. It's really good for both Pastor Spence and his family, and for our church. And so I want to just talk a little bit briefly about what sabbatical is. So if you've never heard that term, 
Sabbatical is a tradition that comes out of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 25, which is further in the story than we are right now in Exodus, God gives a law to his people to let the ground rest every seventh year. And what this is for, both in the agrarian society that it is, it, it, it's beneficial agriculturally, but it also allowed for God's people to be a unique image of who God is, imitating what he exemplified in the creative order. So sabbatical comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which really is a word that means to rest or to cease. And you might have heard the term Sabbath before. Well, that term comes out of the seventh day of creation. God created everything for seven day, six days, and then he ceased his creative work, and he rested. And he gave this to his people as a blessing, as an opportunity to rest and to worship the Lord. And so this, this rhythmic way of enacting our dependency on God week in and week out through Sabbath is what the church practices sometimes from time to time with a periodic leave from work or a periodic ceasing of work called a sabbatical. And that's really what the tradition kind of comes from in our church. And so we're going to be practicing this for the first time in a meaningful way with our lead pastor because Spence has been serving in not just from day one at Mercy, but even many years prior at our sending church, Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham. And so he is in much need of rest and restoration and renewal. Being the spiritual leader of a church is a taxing work. And this will be a time for him and his family to find the much needed rest and the renewal for work many, many years to come that the Lord has for the Shelton family to do here at Mercy Church, and we're excited for that. So it's good. This is a good thing. This is good for Pastor Spence and his family, and it's good for us. Today, specifically, is a really exciting message and a really exciting call to all of us as the body of believers to step in. You might not know, but Mercy is led by a plurality of elders, meaning Spence is not the only leader in this church. He's not the only elder. Also, if you're a member of this body or whether you're not a member yet, we have a lot of co committed covenant members that are indwelt with the Holy Spirit that believe in our mission and are committed to living out that mission. So this isn't a one-man show here, and so even the exercise of a church letting go of its lead pastor for a few months to find that rest and renewal that's needed is an exercise in dependency on God and a call to all of us as the body of believers that are left behind to not cease the work, to continue the work, so that when he comes back, he's impressed with how awesome we've done. He's got new energy in his legs and ability to serve for many years to come. And so I just wanted to share this with you before we get into our message. This is coming up in July. For, several, for the next couple months, Pastor Spence is going to be around. If you guys have questions about this, we welcome those questions. You can send them directly to me, Jake at mercycharlotte.com. You can find it on our website, a link to our elders, the elders at mercycharlotte.com. You can talk to any of our elders. My encouragement is don't talk to one another. Don't raise up dissension in the body by, by spreading rumors. Come ask your question. Talk to Spence. Ask him about, hey, what are your plans for this time? What are you hoping to find in this time of renewal? Because this is a big deal. This is a big gift to the Shelton family, and it's a big opportunity for us as a church to lean in, to support our lead pastor, and to carry the mission forward. So I'm going to bring Pastor Spence up here in a second so he can preach, but first I'm going to pray, and I just want to reiterate, everything is good. <laughs> okay. 
All right, God, we thank you for the gift of rest. We thank you for being a God who has given us the blessing of your presence, for giving us the example of a rhythm week in and week out in various times and various seasons where we can cease, Lord, and we can depend on you. And we acknowledge, even today, our dependency on you. Lord, one of our values that we felt you gave us was that we expect God to change a life today. And Lord, we expect you because we are dependent on you. And so, Lord, we entrust this sabbatical to you. We're going to talk to you more in the months to come about things we hope for our pastor. But, Lord, we just want to give this to you. We want to give this day to you, give this sermon time to you, and entrust you to work, to work in this room, to move in our hearts, and to change us for your glory. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Spence. <laughs> Thanks, man. There is nothing wrong today. No, I'm, that's, uh, that's, that's a little bit of, uh, of overspeak. Um, some of you, I know, were on the other side of last night's game. You're like, I can't believe he'd wear that shirt. Um, look, I just can't take it off until the national championship game, okay? Um, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious, right? And so that's, uh, but hey, as it relates to this, uh, this sabbatical I do, I want to say thank you so much, Mercy family. It is my great joy to be your pastor. I do not assume something like this is a given. In fact, as Pastor Jake said, I've been serving in ministry for 17 years without something like this, which is basically all my adult life and all but one year of my marriage. And um, so I don't take this for granted. It is a massive, um, it's a gift. And it shows your commitment to our ministry here for years to come, which we're excited about. Uh, and you know, it's hard for me to, to step back when I see so much good that the Lord is doing and I'm ready to keep going forward. But um, I know I need that renewal work and it'll be good for Courtney and, and I and our family. And I've got some like writing stuff that I wanna do. You know, I, before I was a preacher, I was a writer and I'm looking forward to digging back into some of that stuff. Uh, like Jake said, this is not like an emergency thing. Uh, I will say a couple of our pastors will be preaching next weekend. So don't like freak out, okay, when they're here. That was planned a long time ago. Um, but yeah, we've got some fun stuff planned. The Sheltons do, uh, and we're still trying to figure that out. We've got some great preachers that are friends of mine that will be coming in to preach God's word, as well as the incredible preachers we have here. And like he said, we're happy to talk about it. But enough about that. Let's get to God's word. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. We do have a fun morning um, planned this morning for us. I think a really timely one in so many ways. Here's what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to be kind of in the middle of the chapter, starting in verse 14, but I'm not going to open that. Uh, you can turn there, but let me set it up for you in case you're um, newer to mercy, you missed a couple weeks, something like that. Our author is a guy named Moses. He is going to pause this action sequence that we've been in for several weeks now for a simple, important message, but the pause comes at a kind of a, an odd time. Like there's been a lot of action building, building, and it feels like the really big stuff is about to unfold, right? You had Moses being rescued out of the water by this Egyptian princess. She rescues him out of the water, calls him Moses because it means I brought him out of the water, which we know that ain't the first time he's going to be brought up out of the water. We're going to see it in the Red Sea. It's this amazing salvation of this kid when all the other Hebrew firstborns are being murdered. He gets saved and rescued. We see him grow up with this dual identity of being Hebrew, but in an Egyptian home and everything. And eventually that dual identity comes to a point of friction 
when he sees this Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. And so he goes out at 40 years old and he murders this Egyptian and then flees to Midian. And there in Midian, he lives the next 40 years of his life, gets married, has children, and then he meets God at a burning bush. And God starts speaking to him through this and calls him, gives him this big assignment to go get his people, go back to Egypt of all places, go back to Egypt where he's wanted for murder and bring out God's people. Go straight into Pharaoh, in fact, and bring out God's people. And so what does Moses do? After some back and forth with the Lord that we've looked at, he goes in and he goes and he talks. He says, Pharaoh, God has told me to come tell you to let his people go so that, and so the so that was a really big deal. Talk about that last week, so that they may worship you. And Pharaoh says, not going to happen, captain, right? And there's this exchange between the two of them and Moses gets dejected down on himself. But God says, and this is where we finished. Now watch what I'm going to do. And so it feels like we would come into this day with, here's what he does. And we we think about the plagues of Exodus and then the, of course, the Exodus where they walk out and we think this must be what we're going to get. And instead we get a list of names. It's strange. We get a genealogy. Man, can you imagine, y'all, I'm really excited. There's a, uh, a movie that I've been waiting to come out for like, I don't know, 20 years. It's the Top Gun sequel, and it's coming out here really soon, right? Can you imagine? Now, I don't know. Uh, we're not going to talk about how Tom Cruise still looks the same age he did in the first one, okay? That's something not right going on there. But can you imagine, like, Maverick gets into the cockpit, you know, and he does his sign thing and everything, and then he gets, and everything looks like he's about to go off into battle, and the music starts getting big, and everything's been built up for the big, what I'm assuming is going to be an awesome fighter jet battle scene, and instead you get Maverick's genealogy, right? Like, we're just going to go back through, you'd be a little bit like, this is oddly placed in here, right? That's kind of what this feels like at first, a little strange, but of course, You know us, you've been around our church a little while, you know we believe that every single word in God's word is inspired by God and he has a good purpose for it. And y'all, Moses puts this genealogy, our author Moses puts this genealogy right here to give the future generations of God's people confidence in the faithfulness of God. Because he's telling them that there is an end to the story and it's a good ending and he's telling it to them before it even begins. Because... Listen, otherwise, the genealogy ends with Moses. Like, he just walked into Pharaoh's court. He and Aaron, what should have happened? Pharaoh should have just killed them right there. But by Moses saying, hey, look, I got this genealogy. It doesn't end with me. There are generations after me. Man, he's showing that when you step out and you trust God, when his people obey him, he will be faithful to fulfill his promise to them. This list reminds the reader that, yes, it's our job to just take a next step, but it's God's job to provide both provision and blessing. And the more steps of obedience we take, the more we see him provide. So what I wanna do is I wanna read you this list of names. These names cover seven generations. They're going to connect the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Judges, all right? And more importantly, uh, maybe just to kind of help you understand what that means, they're gonna connect God's promise to Jacob to be a blessing, which goes all the way back actually to Abraham, God's promise to be a blessing that through this people, he's going to bless all the nations, which will eventually lead to Christ. And he's going to show seven generations down to the judges. All right. And what Moses is saying by putting, he's going to put himself and his brother Aaron in the middle of the genealogy, not at the end. Because this is Moses saying, look, 
This is what God did in our day. But he was faithful and loving long before us. And he just, he even, God even let us see a little bit of what was coming of his faithfulness after our day. He's way bigger than us. And we stepped out because it was our time. And we stepped out on the mission in the confidence that he who promised is faithful and will be faithful. Now, y'all got to get ready for this because it's 14 verses of names. Okay? Some of you are going to be tempted to zone out when you start hearing a list of names. But I'm telling you, if nothing else, see that our God sees every single person. He didn't skip names because every name is a story of God's faithfulness. So this is God's inspired word. I want you to lock in with me as I read you. A lot of times we like preach right through it, but I, this list of names was meant to be read as a group. And so I want to go through it with you just kind of as a group. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. That's Jacob, all right? That's the God's connection to the promise. Jacob is the one that God said, hey, you're gonna go into Egypt, but I promise you, you will be brought out of Egypt. So you're gonna go in, you're gonna be there for 400 years, and then I'm gonna bring you out. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. And then these are the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin, Ohad and Jachin, Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. That little add in the son of a Canaanite woman, part of what that's doing is reminding us that our God is already blessing the nations of the earth through Israel. He's already starting to do it. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their family records. Gershon, Koath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. Now the sons of Gershon were into the next generation. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Koath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Isaiah. Koath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mashai. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, another sermon, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, remember him from number 16. This is Moses' cousin who's going to throw rebellion against God and against the leadership out in the wilderness, saying he does have a rightful claim to authority, but because of the motives of his heart, God is going to swallow him up in the earth. All right, that's Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of, this is a big deal, it's the only time you see, one of the only times you see this in here, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. Amenadab and Nashon are in the line of Christ, all right? Then the line of Judah that the scepter is never going to part from, it's one of the Old Testament prophecies, and that's going to be fulfilled in Christ's line. What you see here, God and his providence is actually grafting Aaron and Moses into even the line of Christ. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir and Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Petiel, and she bore him Phinehas. And Phinehas is going to show up 
over in Numbers 25 in some, a really awesome scene where he's actually going to be the priest that God's, God's going to go after Israel, ready to wipe them from the face of the earth again because of their disobedience, but it's going to be because of his zeal before the Lord that he makes atonement for their sins. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clans. All right, now let me give you for the sake of clarity the seven generations, okay? It goes like this. There's Israel, that's Jacob. Then he has a son named Levi. So if you're like highlighting your Bible, so you're making sense of this, who's, who belongs to who here? By the way, the reason that you have all these other names is because they had to go in order of the sons the way they were born, all right? So you had to have Reuben and Simeon and then Levi. So all I'll say is be glad that Levi was third born and not 12th born of Jacob's sons, okay? So Israel, Levi, Koath, Amram, Aaron of Moses and Aaron, Eleazar, and Phinehas. All right, that's the seven generations that Moses is putting in front of us, connecting Genesis all the way to Judges. It was this, verse 26, it was this Aaron and Moses. That's like the, when you see the, it was this Aaron, this, that's a big deal there, this Aaron and Moses, whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. This Aaron and Moses, because they have the legitimate claim of the role of a priest. The role of priest was given to the Levites and they are Levi's descendants. It is this Aaron and Moses. Think about, I got some friends here at Mercy that um, love Ohio State University, but they always call it the Ohio State University, which there's not other Ohio State universities that I, I don't, if you are a fan of that, do not correct me right now or ever in that, okay? But you understand, like that the, this is, this is this Aaron and Moses, the big deal. They are commissioned by God. It is their birthright to stand in the gap between God and people and to go to God on behalf of the people, offer sacrifices to God and then hear from God and go back to the people and tell them what God has said. That's what a priest does. And Moses is saying, God spoke to he and Aaron as he does with priests. And he was faithful in their day as the people obeyed God's word that they shared with them and took a step. And God continued to be faithful as each generation, generations before them and generations after them, trusted God and took a step. This is why it matters. This is why we pause here is to say before you read everything that's to come in the Exodus, all this incredible work that God does and he does it through Moses and Aaron, just remember they are stand-ins. God has something to say to his people and to the world. So he uses priests to do it in each generation and they're his stand-ins and God is the one who's the main um, character in the story. He's the one who'll be faithful and we pause on this today. It'd be so easy to just skip over the genealogy. We pause on this today, y'all, and really pause our action as a church to remind us that God has put the church here and now to be a kingdom of priests. This, I want to share with you the passage, and really what I want to do with our time today is reintroduce you to Mercy Church. As we finish up our first lap, as Pastor Jake talked about, so to speak, as we come up on that sabbatical time, the most important thing I can do is just remind us of why in the world we're here to begin with. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood. Not just the guy up preaching God's word. No, no, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, just like back in Exodus, early part of Exodus 6, God's going to bring you up out of the land of Egypt. You got to let my people go so that they may worship me. You are a kingdom of priests so that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why he did it. That's why he brought this race, which is a bunch of different ethnicities all brought together under the banner of Christ. And he makes a new race chosen and picked out to be a new race. And what, what are they? What's their role? They're priests. They're holy, not because of their actions, but because of the one who makes them holy. And they have one job. Proclaim the excellencies of him you brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. There was a time we were not a thing. But now we are God's people. And once, why? What's the only thing that binds us together? Well, see, once you had not received mercy. But now, you have not performed well enough to earn anything. No, no, you've received mercy. It's us, the church. We're the stand-ins. It's our job to call people to obey God, just like it was the job of the Levites in Moses' day. For us, it's not our bloodline that gives us this mission. It is Christ's blood that gives it to us. It's God's mercy. This is why we call ourselves Mercy Church. The thing that binds us together is that we who had no claim to know God are now his priests only because of his mercy. And just like God gave Jacob a promise and a mission, just like he gave Moses and Aaron a promise and a mission, after Moses comes Joshua, who he gives a promise and a mission. And you look at the early church, and they had a promise and a mission. God has given Mercy Church a promise and a mission. The promise is that he's faithful. He's faithful, and the mission is to make disciples of Jesus. So just as the narrative paused, and that generation considered their place in God's story, I want to do the same today. I want to show a little of how Mercy Church fits into the story of God's faithfulness, just like Moses did with Israel. And I want to put our mission back in front of us, and I want to invite you to join in. But we're going to start with our story. I'm going to share with you seven generations of Mercy Church. Um, I'm, now, if you were here last summer, uh, I was preaching through the book of Ruth. We were finishing up Ruth, and I showed you Mercy's genealogy from Jerusalem to present day. All right? I'm not going to do that this morning. All right? But if you want that, you can go back and listen to that from, I think it's early June, last summer, all right, uh, in the book of Ruth. But I do want to show you kind of modeling after Moses, seven generations and how we're kind of in the middle. All right, so we'll start with 1878, the First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. Now, the First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina was planted in 1878, and then pretty soon after that began to plant several churches in the Durham area, which is um, like, if you're unfamiliar with North Carolina, just kind of the middle of the state, Okay. Um, and look, this whole planting several churches, this is true with each church I'm about to share about, including ours. So you'll see our story, but the power of really church planting is that ours is just one branch of a whole lot of branches, right? You're going to hear church planting a lot, and that's because our God is a sending God 
who sends his people with the gospel. So we, Mercy Church, Mercy Church, are a sending church. We have five core values, core ministry values that we help kind of guide us and make decisions on. And one of those is that we send God's people to all people. Well, FBC Durham saw a real need in Northern Durham. So they planted a church there in 1907 called North Durham Church. Well, let me fast forward a generation. In 1962, that church saw a need in a neighborhood nearby. And so they planted a church and they called that church Homestead Heights Baptist Mission, which renamed itself Homestead Heights Baptist Church in 1962. Well, 2002, Homestead Heights Baptist Church has been on decline for a number of years. There is a healthy church need in the very neighborhood that they're in, so they recommit themselves to relaunch, and that church relaunched and renamed itself in 2002, the Summit Church. All right, the Summit Church, I walked in there as a sophomore at UNC Chapel Hill, and that church had a vision of planting a thousand churches. It was in the Summit Church that the Lord called me into ministry, and it's where I spent my first 10 years as a pastor. And during that time, the Summit Church planted churches all across the country, and the world continues to do so in this day. Uh, to this day, well, 2015, that church sent me, along with 60 others, to plant a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. So inspired by 1 Peter 2, we called this new church Mercy Church. So that's 2015. Now, I don't have pictures of other launch teams, but I do have a picture of Mercy's launch team, I think. So what I want to do is show you, uh, if I can, the picture of Mercy's wild and crazy um, launch team. And here's the reason I show you that. As you look at that group, um, that's 60 folks and some of their kids. I was the only one that was paid as a part of um, the launch team, like a paid staff member or something like that at the time that we launched. 30 people just relocated themselves from Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, down to, and some from Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, down to Charlotte. Others who were already here in Charlotte um, joined up with us. And I say that because y'all, this is ordinary people, all right? Ordinary people that are getting uh, on God's mission together and launching a church. All right, you can take that picture down. <laughs> that was seven years ago. I had no gray in my hair. Um, well, since then, Mercy's been able to launch, help launch churches by sending both our people and our money. We've helped launch churches in Los Angeles, Brooklyn, Nashville, Orlando, Atlanta. We've sent 11 people to take the gospel overseas in different areas of need around the world. And now we've reached a moment where we can actually send out a church plant. We've kind of hit that stride as a church. After all, we send God's people to all people. We got to send some people last year here to Charlotte. And then this summer, we're sending one of our own to plant a church in Nairobi, Kenya. So let's look at the genealogy again. Just like Moses and Aaron, it doesn't end with us. In 2022, we're going to plant Mercy. God's going to plant Mercy Nairobi. Alan and his team will plant a church in the heart of Kenya. And here's what's awesome. Kenya borders three countries in what missiologists call the 1040 window. Latitude, longitude language to talk about a region of the world filled with people, uh, people groups who are unreached. They have no access to the gospel. Now we get to send a church to a strategic location that can mobilize church planters to go into these unreached groups. And we're gonna partner with them to do it and we're gonna to continue to send our people, right? Because they say a church is not actually truly a church planting church until it has grandkids. So we're praying for and supporting Mercy Nairobi and we are excited for the day that they add their Phineas. 
the seventh generation, right? That day is coming. Right now, the name of that church is to be announced later, okay? Because <laughs> we don't know yet. But what I want you to see there is that the story of God is not centered around Mercy Church. We are not the beginning and we are not the end of God's story. But this is our time. This is our time. God has put us here in Charlotte, North Carolina with a simple mission. The mission he gave the first church. Let me share with you that mission and vision and invite you off the sidelines to what he's doing here. Because y'all, we're still just people. We've got a few more staff, yes, because the church has grown. But our mission and vision are exactly the same. Our mission as a church, it's been said a couple times this morning, is to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love each other, and love our world. Jesus gave the church one job. Like, if we do that, we succeed, and if we don't, we fail. It's like Moses, you got one job, go get my people. Same thing for the church, we got one job, go get his people. Make disciples of Jesus. This is Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said it to his disciples, go make disciples. You who are disciples, make more disciples, because that's what a disciple does. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Y'all, this is what we do. We make disciples. And there are great things about being an almost seven-year-old church. We've got a little bit of stability, a little bit of maturity. But with that comes a giant danger. The danger is we could get distracted from our mission. I desperately do not want that for us. Our mission is too urgent. People need Jesus. And y'all, success for us is not how many people come on Sunday, how many programs we have, how flashy our music is, or how great our preaching is, or anything else. Because the reality is Charlotte, North Carolina, doesn't need the same Christians just moving from church to church every 10 years. It needs an awakening. Where Christians are trained and mobilized to make disciples among their lost friends. It needs a church that believes and is equipped for the reality of an atheist finding Jesus and growing all the way into a pastor. Where an unbeliever can discover Jesus and grow all the way into a missionary. I don't want to just settle for, hey, we're a better church than the church down the street. Because one day we won't be. You get how, how awful that is, how toxic that, that is? I want to be a church full of disciple makers where the lost are saved, the saved are trained, and the trained are sent. Where we measure success by the simple question, are we making disciples? I told you a few weeks ago that the way I kind of, um, that's been taught to me, and I feel like it's a good thing for me to get my head around in terms of what kind of church we're building here, is uh, think of it in terms of building ships. We are not building a cruise ship here at Mercy Church. A cruise ship is something that has programs built to entertain everyone along for the ride. That is the danger for a church as it ages. It slips into maintaining and entertaining. But our mission is not entertain bored Christians. Our mission is make disciples of Jesus. So I told you the church that we're building here is gonna be more like an aircraft carrier where we train you and we equip you and we send you out from here to take the gospel to the battlefield. Because the battle usually, if the, the battle's not really at the aircraft carrier, it's usually a problem when it's there. Usually the battlefield is out where you work and live. And the question that keeps me up at night is are our ministries preparing you to make disciples on the battlefield? Our kids and student ministries, simple mission. They partner with families to make disciples 
of the next generation? Our community groups, are we making disciples who can make disciples? Community outreach to our city, are we simply completing projects or are we making disciples of Jesus? Even my preaching here on Sunday morning, I run through this grid. Like I don't wanna just do some knowledge transfer. I wanna help you see God's word. I wanna hold up the glory of God in such a way that it's gonna train you to go into God's word and get after it, which is why we preach verse by verse almost every time. I think of um, one of our own, Catherine Mitchell. I didn't tell her I was going to brag on her. She'll be okay. Um, she was baptized here. She grew as a follower of Jesus here. She quit her job as a lawyer to go be an instructor at an all-girls school just outside of Nairobi in Kenya. She's the head of school now, and I've met the women that she has discipled who are now discipling the young women at the school. That's what we got to be about. And I confess, COVID was a massive distraction I think for all of us, took all of us a little bit off course, probably took me off course, a little bit of our main purpose. More than anything, I want you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. That's why we're here. So like an aircraft carrier, we're probably never gonna look super shiny and flashy, all right? But we're not built for looking good. We're built for mission, for making disciples. That's our thing. And if we do that thing, if we do that thing, then here's the vision of what will happen, what we are asking the Lord for us to see happen. Instead, a gospel awakening will happen here in Charlotte. It'll get carried to the ends of the earth. Our mission is to make disciples and our vision, and it's been this way since day one, our vision is to see a gospel awakening. And I say awakening because there's a dormant Christianity in our city that needs awakening. Christians need to rise up out of their slumber, recapture a passionate relationship with Jesus and recapture his heart for the lost. Our city continues to grow. Last stat I saw showed that still over 100 people a day are moving into this region. That means, you, you do the math, real quick you'll see, that means we need a new mega church every month to keep up with population growth. So we wanna see new churches planted, we wanna see declining churches revitalized, we want sleepy Christians to wake up out of their slumber and get on fire for the Lord and the calling he has on their lives. I believe with everything in me that Charlotte should be one of the great missionary sending hubs in the world. Y'all, we got 120 languages spoken inside the city limits of Charlotte. The peoples of the world are coming here. We have the gospel. Take it to them and see what the Lord does. But it all starts with a gospel awakening in my own heart. It starts going with me going back and you going back and abiding in Christ. I gotta be reminded that none of this I'm talking about is my doing. It's his doing. Not my faithfulness, but his faithfulness that saved me from my sin and reconciled me back to God. He doesn't pile burdens of chores on me and call it religion. He invites me into his mission. He offers me a spot in the game, a, a role to see people experience the mercy I've experienced. And I think the, the reason many of us aren't excited about the mission of God is because we've forgotten the mercy of God in our own lives. This is why uh, I told you five core ministry values. The first and primary one is that we keep the gospel at the center of all we do. Because I know the best motivation for you is God's faithfulness to you. So we sing it, we preach it, we study it, we remember it in communion, we celebrate it in baptism. That's our thing, the gospel. We devote ourselves to the gospel and an awakening will happen. It'll come one person at a time, one step at a time, which is why Another one of those core values is we help people take their next step in following Jesus. 
Because a church that is laser focused on helping one person take their next, one next step, that's the church that'll change the world. Jesus left the 99, he went after the one. So we are very much about numbers here at Mercy Church, the one. The one lost sheep, the one prodigal son or daughter. And we'll do whatever it takes for that one to be reconciled to God through Christ, for that one to be equipped and trained to be able to go and see others come to know Christ. So let's finish, conclude with this. What's your next step? I imagine there's about one of three or one or two of three next steps. The first step is believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Some of you are not followers of Jesus. You've been considering the gospel message for a while. Maybe today is the first day that you have. I'm gonna give you a chance to do that a little bit later. Believe and then respond to the gospel that says while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He offers you forgiveness for your sins and reconciliation to God. And then you're baptized as a public profession of that faith. We're gonna do baptisms Easter Sunday. Man, what a moment for you to step out just as Christ was publicly executed for your sins and rose up out of the grave. So you publicly show your allegiance to him and your confession of faith by being baptized. I can't imagine a better time than, than Easter. The second step, I think we all need to take actually is to pray and begin engaging our lost friends and family. It's time to see that you are not the end of your genealogy of faith. You're not the end. Do you believe? So, y'all, we gotta wake up to this. Somebody is going to find Christ through you. Not because of how awesome you are. You're not very great, okay? <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> because of Christ. This is how he's wired it up. You hear me say it a lot of times, who's someone far from God but close to you? It's just because this is where God has placed you. And then they're going to lead someone to faith. You're going to see a Phineas a couple generations down the line. You're not the focus, but it is your time. I'm telling you, there's nothing. This is why I say we want to pray for 200 lost people to come to our services and hear the gospel Easter Sunday. Because it's 200 opportunities for genealogies to be forever changed. The last thing I'll tell you and the thing we'll direct the rest of our attention this service to, some of you need to take a step and join the ministry here. I'm, I'm going to end our time asking everyone to take a next step in ministry. I don't know exactly how God has wired you up, but I know, I do know this. He has called you to serve the body of Christ to the glory of God. He intentionally gives every Christian a spiritual gift and then calls them to use that gift towards other Christians, and as you do, others experience God's blessing through your service. And I know you probably don't know how God has gifted you or what your specific calling is on your life, but what I do know is the promise, and that's that he's faithful. He's faithful, and you can trust him with one next step. Just the next steps. We're creating that next step for all of us today. So what the card on your seat is about. In just a minute, we're gonna hear testimonies at both of our campuses of how serving others will change your life because that's how God has wired it up. But it's just a small step, y'all. A small step with a big, faithful God. Here's why I say that. Sometimes we freeze when it comes to figuring out what God's calling is on my life because the, the idea is so big. Like what, how am I spiritually gifted? What am I supposed to do? I don't know. And we wait for a sign of some kind. My old pastor used to say it this way. He said, for the longest time, he never 
did anything, never took any steps to step out and trust God and serve others like in a ministry capacity because, you know, he was waiting on a sign. He said, and then he kept eating his SpaghettiOs and all that the Lord ever said in his SpaghettiOs was, ooh, right? Like he never actually told him anything. And he realized, you know what? Maybe I need to stop waiting on some big sign and just take a step. And that really challenged me. So, you know, just this is my own story. I've served on se- in several ministry areas in the two local churches that I've been in since college. Um, I served on the parking team. And then from the parking team, I served on the setup team because we were at a mobile facility for a long time. Some of you there at Northeast need to take that step. Um, I served on the connections team. And then I served in kids ministry uh, with my wife for a year. It was fantastic. And then after that, I served on the connections team and then in pastoral ministry. Now, those aren't like graduated steps, okay? Instead, what happened is in each one of those, I started to learn a little bit more about myself. And I had some spiritual mothers and fathers helping me out along the way, pointing out, hey, this seems to be something that you're good at. Not necessarily like, man, you're really great at parking cars. Anybody that knows me well enough know I'm not organized about very much at all, okay? But you seem to have a real gift for teaching because the last thing I served in before pastoral ministry was I was a community group leader. And it was there that I was like, oh, opening the Bible and teaching it, man, I love doing that. And people seem to be responding. And I had Spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith say, yeah, this is something for you. That's how it happens, y'all. You take a step. You begin to take a step and and then another one, and we walk with one another towards figuring out how the Lord has gifted each one of us. Just taking a step. And you'll hear some more from others who have just taken a step. So I'm going to close. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to hand it over to Joseph there at Northeast. And uh, here, uh, I'll help us here at Providence Road. Uh, just listen to stories of God's faithfulness through others who have taken a next step. And I want to invite you to do the same. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace that even in a genealogy, we are reminded of that one awesome promise that you are faithful. Think of Hebrews 10 that talks about we can hold fast to the confession of our hope to the gospel because he who promised is faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. I pray, Father, that you would use this morning for our good and your glory. And we thank you that we've been allowed a time to just reflect on your, on your goodness. I want to invite you as we're praying, if you're not a Christian, both of our campuses, that now's the time to receive the salvation that God offers you in Christ. In Easter, we're going to spend the whole weekend talking about this, as we do every weekend here that you are a sinner in need of saving from your sins. But God loves you. He created you to know him and to be reconciled back to him. But you can't get there on your own. Your sin is too great. And on your own, you'd be, find yourself sinning over and over again, and you'll still struggle with it, but there's freedom from the penalty of it. And there's freedom from his dominion over you. And all you have to do is tell God, God, I believe that Christ died for my sins. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave, declaring victory over sin and death. So I receive the payment, the forgiveness that he offers me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Father, thank you for your grace. What a gift, undeserved, and we love you. We praise you in Christ. 
holy name. Amen.